Sophie. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Effective Conversation Podcast. It's nice to be here. <laughs> Can you say a few words about you? What do you do? What is the organization is about? Sure. Um, so my name is Sophie Price. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. And I'm a um, Canadian climate activist. Um, I work with several different organizations. Um, I tend to name Climate Strike Canada as one of the main ones, as well as the Divest Canada Coalition. Um, divest? Divest. So divest. divestment. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the Divest Canada Coalition is, is around fossil fuel divestment at universities and colleges in Canada. It's very new. It's very exciting. So those two. So can you say more about those two, two organizations? Sure. So I've been a part of Climate Strike Canada since, well, when it be- pretty much almost a couple months after it began. So back in what, like beginning of 2019, end of 2019. Um, and I started out uh, striking in my tiny small town of Brighton. Um, So when I first joined Climate Strike Canada, I was doing a lot of helping with social media um, and it's kind of that sort of thing that I could do from um, a little tiny town. And then I moved to Ottawa for school and I started doing um, some bigger strikes in in Ottawa and coordinating more on more on a national a national level. And I I still do social media for Climate Strike Canada that never seems to have um, left my (laughs) my repertoire at this point. Um, But yeah, and then the Divest Canada Coalition was a group that I actually founded over the summer of 2020. Um, And it's a group of different divestment groups. It's a coalition of different divestment groups uh, from across Canada that are all working to achieve uh, fossil fuel divestment from their educational institutions. Um, So it's just kind of a way for us all to stay in connection and coordinate and to be able to kind of push those campaigns more successfully. So what do you mean divest uh, from uh, university uh, put uh, invest money in the fossil fuel? Yeah, so um, every university has what's called an endowment fund and money from that endowment fund gets invested into different um, different industries and different things that they think they can make they can make some money from and and one of those um, is the fossil fuel industry. Um, so what what the, these divestment groups are asking for is that, that that money gets taken out of the fossil fuel industry and instead reinvested into more sustainable solutions and more um, more things that will directly directly uh, help our communities. That's cool. How does it going? Um, it's going better than it was in previous years. I think we've had something like three schools commit to some form of divestment this year since the coalition began. Uh, so I think we're up to... I'm going to miss, this is not the right number, but around six schools in Canada that have committed to some form of divestment. School or college or it's the same? Same. same. Universities is, University. if you want to be specific. Yeah. So there's um, Lakehead University was this year and so was, um, oh, who else did it list this year? Lakehead and McMaster just did, just did something that's a little bit like divestment, um, but it's more what you would call partial divestment. So they're taking money out of some fossil fuel investments, but not all of them, but it's a start. Um, But Canada is still like really far behind in terms of that. So lots of like um, US schools and lots of UK. So um, in the, in the United Kingdom have committed a lot more to divestment than Canada. Canada is very, (laughs) very far behind when it comes to divestment. Interesting. Yeah. 
everybody thinks that Canada is kind of the leader of the green uh, world, but there's, I guess, some areas that Canada maybe leads and some areas less, right? Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I don't know where Canada leads. Um, <laughs> I, I see a lot, a lot of uh, Canada falling behind in terms of being an environmental leader. Um, there's a lot of a lot of places where where we're actually way behind other developed countries. And um, yeah, I, I personally don't know where we're leading. Right. So can you say um, in this uh, coalition and when you when you ask uh, the school slash university to divest you talking to the who are you talking with and what 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 do you need to to uh, convince them with or how you need a lot of support so of the of the students so they will agree what what is actually is happening like you need lots of people what do you need for them to to divest to actually do what you want or commit mm-hmm Well, it's actually interesting because it's a very unique situation depending on uh, which school you're at. So there's been a couple of schools that have just kind of committed to divestment almost right away without much. Um, well, of course, there's always lots of work behind the scenes, but um, <laughs> but without without a whole lot of, of stuff having to be done. Um, whereas other schools have had campaigns that have been going on for years, like McGill University, for example, um, and they still haven't been able to achieve divestment. But usually what it starts out with is kind of um, a petition that sent, that's sent out to the students. So uh, that's a petition for the school to divest from fossil fuels and that gets signed by students. And then following that, there's usually some petitions for faculty members um, and anyone who's employed by the university. And then after that, um, there's sometimes other petitions that go out to um, like, uh, like leads of faculties, if that makes sense, like faculty groups, like public affairs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and once those petitions are kind of done circulating, um, they get taken up to, uh, the board of the board of governors is what, what it's called at my school. Anyway, I think it depends on what school you go to. Um, but they're basically a board that kind of decides these kind of big decisions for the university. Um, and then we kind of deliver a pitch and we say like, these are all the people that would like fossil fuel divestment. And these are all the reasons why it's a good idea to divest from fossil fuels. Um, And then there's conversations with like the financial advisory team. And then there's conversations with the people that actually make the decisions about the investments. And it's, it's quite a, it's quite a long process and a lot of meetings with lots of different people. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and are you part of this? Um, so my school, Carleton University, does have a divestment campaign. Um, it's relatively new. So it was just kind of started this year. Um, I have been a part of it in terms of outreach. So I've been able to kind of put the divestment campaign in touch with a lot of other um, kind of organizations and groups that are able to assist them. But I myself have not been directly involved in conversations with uh, my university. No. Right. And, and when you talk with governor, it should be adults, I assume. Yes, it's, it's usually adults and they're usually, uh, usually older adults. <laughs> older adults, like 60? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 60 and above. 60 and, and above. Yeah. And men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Generally, generally men, generally so you, white men. <laughs> so you need to understand in finance too for that, for for uh, convincing and, and influencing them? Yeah, so we actually usually have a, a research team and that research team uh, does a lot of a lot of research into, into the finance, into the finance aspect, aspect of divestment and why it's a smart financial decision. Um, so that aspect is basically the fact that the fossil fuel industry is no longer a sustainable investment, um, 
because of the fact that we're not going to be able to support ourselves on fossil fuels. So eventually we're going to have to start cutting down how much we're using it and that's going to impact the investments. Um, obviously, I don't know all the financial side of it, so I'm not the best person to speak to that. Um, but there is a team that does look at the financial side of it and puts together a proposal, which then also gets shown to the Board of Governors. Yeah. Amazing. It's intense. <laughs> it, it's amazing. It's um, very inspiring. You know, from as a person sitting from a side, uh, outside of this, do you see a lot of petitions happening? And everybody wants you to sign something, but you don't know what is being done with that. Yeah. And now you can hear true. the full story of what is being done with the petition. Okay, I, I took the time, I signed that, and now what? And yeah. many times the person that signed doesn't have uh, not just information, like nobody tell us, you know, like inform us exactly, you know, what's going on. So this mm-hmm. is really, really good uh, story to hear what's going on. And, and how... How much is it important for you to have many uh, people sign on the petition? Like how much is it influencing the mm-hmm. decision makers? Well, we like to think that it's that it has a huge influence, right? You, you like to think that schools and universities and colleges make decisions based off what their what their students want and what their faculty wants. Um, and I think in some cases it does like it, it does. It does make an impact. Um, but there is also other things that that you have to be considered when you get up to the board of governors level. Uh, a lot of people who sit on the board often have their own personal connections to the fossil fuel industry. Um, so I think it does it does assist in the process for sure to have as many signatures as pop- possible and as much public support as possible. But there is other factors. So when you when you get to the point that uh, there is a connection and it's, it's a personal thing that the person that sits there doesn't want to change. What, mm-hmm. How can you, what, what do you do? Well, it's hard when you get to that point. Um, and that's kind of why the coalition was formed, if I'm honest. So we, we, we've seen that happen at multiple universities where they just kind of hit a dead end and it's just they don't know what to do. Um, and the tactic we're kind of using to get around that is, is influence um, and pressure from other universities. So the mm. more universities divest, the more it puts pressure on other universities to divest. They, they are very competitive. They like to compete with each other and want to be seen as the most environmentally friendly university. Um, so there is that whole aspect of competition. And I think that's why the coalition was formed as well, was to be able to give those groups who that kind of hit, hit a wall uh, somewhere to go from there and somewhere to move forward. But there is also cases like, um, oh goodness, I'm forgetting the school right now, but there was a school that committed to divestment and one of the professors was the professor? No. One of the Board of Governor members actually quit when they committed to divestment because of personal ties to the fossil fuel industry. That's fair enough. <laughs> yeah, it, it was quite a story. Um, yeah, they just they, they just quit because they couldn't they couldn't support it. So Yeah, that that's a lot of pressure and a lot of change that they needed need to take and the world needs to take too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well in Divestment is something that's kind of kind of become a very popular topic in the recent months as well. And I think um, bank divestment has re- recently taken off. There's a lot of people pushing for bank divestment as well. So it's definitely a, 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 not a new conversation, but one that's definitely gaining a lot more traction recently. And the money that universities have is from the students learning from them and paying them? The, so it's actually student money? Some of it. Some of it is student money. Um, some of it is money they make from other investments and donations and, and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, donation? You give donation and you get money? No, like like some of the money the university the university has is from donations to the school. Mm, okay, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Donation um, given to them. 
yes yeah donation given to them yeah um right. and i'm not sure entirely what where the funds in the endowment fund come from um again i should but <laughs> that's more the financial team uh than me and they'd probably be able to speak better to that but yeah i'm just thinking like if i'm learning in a university or whatever i put my money in my bank i i have like personal interest to know where the money goes yeah well so and, and banks banks right? in particular don't disclose very very easily where they where no. they invest their money um so that's something we're working on as well as that getting that transparency from these institutions about where they're where they're investing their money and finance is also one of those topics that's considered very complicated to understand there's not a coincidence that white men older men sits there in the board because it's it's something i feel like as a society we because money is the root of so many problems we have in the world like we need to explain or talk more about money and finance so people won't be so scared about that yeah it's I a think scary it's a... topic we don't know we don't understand the vesting investing like it's <laughs> like, i agree and i think friend. i think it's it's important to have these conversations where it's not just all uh you know big big financial terms that people don't people don't understand and um the the divest canada coalition actually just came out with a podcast called the divest podcast and and we're working on that as well to um to make sure that everything like like the financial side of investment is easy to understand um so that everyone who who is interested would like and would like to understand uh it a little bit better is, is able to um without going and having to read you know lots of research papers and <laughs> google every other word and, and all that fun stuff yeah <laughs> yeah and it's really connects also to climate key because also <laughs> key is hebrew <laughs> because climate is also one of those topics that is so complicated for people to understand and to understand the science and then people start to say, but the science says, but the science, and then they don't know how to follow through what they're going to say, but the science says, and we kind of, but there's piece, different pieces of information on the science too. And then, mm -hmm. then counterfacts. Do you yeah. see, do you see that a lot when you go for strikes? People argue about the science? Um, a little, a little. I tend, like, when we're doing in-person strikes, we, we tend to see less uh, less resistance than online. People are a lot more comfortable speaking speaking against uh, this sort of stuff online. Um, and there is always the whole, like, where's your proof? What's the science? Like, this is all lies. Um, that's, that's always something that's <laughs> kind of being thrown at us. Um, when you do it in person? When you... No, um, or online? It, online more. Online in more. person in, in person depends on the action um i've personally only been at a couple where i've actually had someone come up to me um it also depends where you are i know there's there's strike groups in places like alberta that aren't even comfortable striking in person because of the amount of hate they receive um so i i'm very fortunate to be able to strike in somewhere that um doesn't have that kind of public public hate as as much i'm sorry for my uh, ignorance is the, your small town is BC? No, uh, no, Ontario. Ontario, okay. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, so w where you prove, so people throw it to the air and what do you do with that? Like you start uh, explaining them and sending them articles about the science? <laughs> what do you do? Sometimes. Um, it really depends on whether the person seems like they would be open to a conversation. Um, so mm. sometimes, you know, you get you get a kind of like a hate comment um, rather than a, a question. Um, and, and that's usually 
generally ignored um, instead of instead of responded to just because responding to you know you usually just get another mean recom- mean comment back. Um, but it, but if someone asks asks like a genuine question um, about the science or about or about or about the um, yeah about the science or if they have like a question about something that's been going on and they just don't understand where it's coming from then yes always we always respond with um with information and articles and, and links to science and research um so that it's easier for them to understand so how do you differentiate between a hate, hate comes with curse and dirty language how do you differentiate somebody that's really interested interested in yeah well it's it's all it's all in the attitude of the comment right so if someone um If someone comments on a post or something like hey like this has been going on in in BC and I I totally thought that um, that this wasn't an issue because like of this research like can you guys tell me why like why you're fighting for this if it's not an issue that person seems a little, little bit more open to having a conversation whereas someone commenting on a post going like this is dumb and this makes no sense and you're all wrong <laughs> um, okay. isn't really you know it's they're not giving us any anything to go on other than the fact that we're wrong um so we usually don't don't generally respond to things like that right and what else can you say but so this is the divestment and the other organization is um climate strike Canada was the other organization yeah and what do you do there um, climate strike Canada is is very much like uh you Like a coalition as well so climate strike Canada is just a way of organizing all the local groups across Canada to be able to um, organize uh, international strikes and national strikes um, and provide resources to those local groups that are just starting out so I always like to say it's less of a group itself and more of just a place for for, for local strikers to be able to communicate with other local strikers across the country um, so on its own on its own climate strike Canada runs a few campaigns um, and does a few educational sessions and that sort of thing. But generally it's just a place for um, local groups to be able to communicate with each other so it's online kind of an yeah, online so, website yeah so we have a we have a slack channel that that local groups are added to and and we communicate through there um, I mean we also have like social media and all that stuff as well so that the public can kind of know what we're up to but yeah and how's it going with them you, you're volunteering in both in both of them Yeah, <laughs> all, all volunteer. Um, all volunteer. There's no money in those organizations? There is no money. <laughs> um, we sometimes get donations from uh, different NGOs to run campaigns, but it's not to pay ourselves. It's usually to pay for things within the campaign, um, like video editing and supplies and projects. And um, anyone that we, we sometimes hire, like graphic designers, so money sometimes goes to them. Um, but yeah, otherwise, no money there, just volunteering. Yeah. Um, But it's been an interesting year. A lot of online actions, which has really taken a, a, big, a big toll on people, I think. A lot of people are facing pretty, pretty strong burnout right now. And it's been, it's been an interesting year. And I think we're all looking forward to everyone getting their vaccinations so we can get out in, in person again and <laughs> have that kind of community organizing feel again. Right. And about vaccination and climate, what, how do you see the connection with that and COVID? Yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's a really big, a really big question, right? And, um, you know, like diseases and, and things like coronavirus and um, infections are, are going to increase as the climate crisis gets worse. And, and I think we've seen that connection. Uh, and I think other, other researchers have drawn, have drawn that connection from the COVID-19 pandemic and, and have said that this is only going to get worse with climate change. Um, 
this is going to be something that we see more and more and more. And um, we're going to see kind of viruses that are able to mutate faster. And, and um, you know, that's definitely, definitely a real threat. And um, again, I, I, don't, I, I don't want to speak too much on that because I, I haven't, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher, so I haven't done the research on that. Um, it's okay. You don't need to be scientist. <laughs> not all of us need to be scientists. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I think it is it is a real it is a real concern, and I I do hope that um, everyone gets their vaccination for the COVID nineteen pandemic, and then hopefully we can get some real action taken on on climate change, and it'll be hopefully many many years before we face another global pandemic again. <laughs> when you talk about that with friends, can you ex- can you share your emotions too about that, like this whole climate and the and the fear that things getting worse and gonna get worse yeah i think one of the reasons that we all choose to be climate activists and climate organizers is because of that um fear and that anxiety um and it's a lot of like you know you throw yourself into the movement to kind of avoid thinking about it (laughs) the more time the more time you spend organizing the less time you worry about um you know the future but it's it's interesting and, and myself in particular i i participated in a in a pledge last year um, with Emma Lim, who's another quite well-known climate activist in Canada called the No Future, No Children Pledge. And it was basically a pledge where youth signed and said that they weren't going to, um, weren't going to have children unless they could uh, assure that the planet would be a safe place for them to live um, and for their children to live as they got older. And I think like that, that pledge hit me hard when we were working on that and when we were, we were waiting for that and just like, realizing that this this is my life like um I don't I don't think more than 20 years in advance for myself because I don't know what the world's gonna look like I don't know what the planet's gonna look like um and I think like many of the climate activists I know as well are like I can't see my (laughs) I can't see my older years being like my grandparents or being like you know like my great-grandparents and being in a being in a nursing home and having those comforts and um I don't know I I try not to think that far ahead um I hope that we'll, we're able to make as much of a difference as possible and that we won't by, be hit by all these um, crises that come with the climate crisis. And I, and I hope that, that that won't be the case and won't be the scenario. But it is, it is a real thought and it is something that um, does cross our minds. And I think that's why we throw so much into organizing and why a lot of activists also face burnout. It's, it's, it's almost like a procrastination of thinking about... Um, yeah, thinking about the severity of the climate crisis. Yeah, the su- suppressing the the feeling, I would say, instead of and and then doing, acting a lot. Instead. Yeah, it's it's acting it's acting a lot. Yeah, and I think there so, was. Did you experience anxiety? Um, I mean, I have anxiety anyway. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> But <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if that came from that came from climate um, or not. Um, but I've had periods of time in my life where I've just been unable to even organize because of how anxious or stressed I am. And I just can't even think about things. I have to just kind of, you know, <laughs> avoid all those big topics for as long as possible and kind of in, 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 well, in, um, invest myself in, in, in nature and um, my daily life to be able to kind of function. Um, there was a period of time when I was at university and I, I was taking some environmental studies class classes and I had a, 
I had a lecture and we watched a, a documentary, which is, it was a fantastic documentary, but I, um, I had to get up and leave halfway through the class because I which was just like breaking down. <laughs> um, and I, I, for a while there, I just could not watch nature. I couldn't watch climate change documentaries. Like I just, I couldn't do it because it just made me sit down and think um, about all of the things that we're trying to deal with and how almost impossible it seems when you think about it like that. It's big. It's overwhelming. It's very overwhelming. And it's, um, it's hard when you think about everything you kind of have to deal with at once, you know, that's why we try and isolate, isolate topics and focus on things like the fossil fuel industry. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And do you do something um, as a group to, to like join a Macy workshops or uh, um, circles, like listening circles, something like that to, to address this uh, burnout and anxiety? Mm -hmm. We're getting better at addressing burnout. Um, burnout has been one that it hasn't been addressed as, as much in the past. And I think it's something we're all starting to have conversations about now. Um, a lot of the activists I know started at, you know, not long after, after Greta Thunberg. Um, and we've kind of all been going, going, going. And again, after <laughs> and so, what? After, after Greta started. After striking. Greta. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think we've all kind of been go, going, going, going go, until go, go. about now. And, and now everyone's like, okay, this is going to go on a lot longer than we originally planned. And we're all like, okay, we need to find a way to continue to do this sustainably for ourselves so that this is something that we can keep doing um, effectively for as long as possible. Sustainably, right? Sustainably, yeah. We got to sustain ourselves as well. <laughs> yeah, in, in, in the run to save the planet, we, and <laughs> we burn out ourselves sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no worries. And I think many people and many, I, I, I think everyone that understands the severity of the situation, not just youth, of course, uh, feels that. But the younger you are, maybe. Do you see differences between like younger people than older people how they deal with this anxiety and and what need to be done and overwhelming yeah again. I think so it's it's interesting because I feel like maybe this is just my perception as well but like this is this is kind of a new era in terms of climate change and the way we address it um and I think a lot of a lot of older people are just very focused on their day-to-day -day lives they have enough going on to be able to focus on their day-to-day -day lives and um Uh, a lot of people my age are now realizing how big of a topic this is and we're kind of throwing themselves as much behind it as possible to be able to um, kind of compete it, compete with it. Um, and I think there's even people my age, though. I know I know my some of my friends who are who are very focused on the day to day, you know, university, college, getting a good job, um, all, all those basics. And then I think younger kids nowadays are, are a lot more um, a lot more energetic. Can you? Can you Can you say in numbers, younger and older? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Okay. Um, how, how old are you? I'm 19. 18? So I'm okay. 19, sorry. I'm 19. 19. So um, when I say younger, I, I mean uh, like elementary school age. So anywhere between, um, you know, kindergarten and grade eight. Ooh, um, very young. Yeah, Very young. And Very I young. find those kids have so much energy and they're so enthusiastic about being able to solve climate change and defeat this problem and 
research it and do all they can. And it's great. Like the energy is what we need. Um, and then I find people who are high school age, beginning of university are the people now who have been kind of fighting this for a couple of years at least and are starting to be like, okay, we can do this, but we need to like slow down, figure out some effective strategies. And this is going to be a lot harder than we originally thought. Um, and it's kind of a lot more of that strategizing, planning, and that sort of aspect. Um, the energy is still there, but I think it's harder to find just because of um, how many setbacks we've had up till this point as well. Um, and then I think as you get into um, into old older adults, people who have settled down, have families, have kids, maybe have older kids, um, they're 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 interested but they're maybe just doing like a little bit of reading and they're supporting their kids and they're supporting the younger kids. Um, and they're again, just kind of very focused on their, on their everyday because that's what they've been doing for many, many years. Right. So. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Like that, uh, what Greta was saying, it's, it's really true <laughs> from what you're saying that, uh, we, we, the, the, the youth, the kids need to take care, take care of their own own future right mm -hmm. now because the adults are busy with their own lives. It's so yeah, sad. It's, <laughs> it's true. It is true. And I think it's it's going to be interesting. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. Um, we see a lot more youth now running for for politics. Um, and I'm interested to see the age of people my age being involved in, in politics and, and seeing where that's going to take us as, as a country and as a as a population, um, as kind of my generation starts to edge its way into into more powerful positions. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Like <laughs> elementary. Yeah, yeah that, <laughs> that's strong. <laughs> that's so young. Yep. My, my son is seven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he's that young age as well. <laughs> he's already in elementary school. Yeah. But uh, he, he he's not he hasn't started um, really be interested in other things that that him than himself. Yeah. 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 I think I um I sat down the other day and had had a conversation with one of my fellow climate activists uh, with a group of a group of grade fives from um, D.C. Washington Washington D.C. Out on Zoom, and they were doing a they were doing a class project on climate change, and it was one of my favorite calls of the entire pandemic. <laughs> um, these kids were like just so enthusiastic, and they had done so much research, and they were so excited to talk to us, and just the amount of energy that they had and were willing to throw behind this subject just blew me away. Um, and I think it's really kind of sparked a new, a new inspiration for me in terms of education and climate education in in younger kids and in our school systems as well. And I think, um, I think it's, it's awesome to see that kind of energy coming from the younger generations. So you said two things that I want to dive in. You said we need, we need a lot of energy. And I want to uh, ask about that because as, as a person that's been in strike, strikes and wrote, signed many petitions, energy feels like fluff, lots of fluffing in the hands. Maybe it's the wrong word, <laughs> flapping in, with, yeah. with hands, but not a lot of happening from that energy. So many young, young and if, especially in Israel, we, had a, we have so many strikes against uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, mm -hmm. and he's still being elected again and again. And there is election every year <laughs> again and again. So that's like, how much this really energy doing something? 
it, it's a question and I want you to say something about that because I, it's definitely fueling you and, and people that are doing that. But how much is it affecting decision makers in when, mm-hmm. when they see the lots of kids um i i heard other comments about kids doing and they can't do nothing and uh, it doesn't matter how many kids will be outside in the street so how much is it like really affecting this is a big question i have and the other thing that you said climate education i want to know what is the right education to teach and how much you can expose them with the understanding it's overwhelming and exi- bring anxiety and how much how much can you put on kids like elementary mm-hmm. school how much to open up from them for them how much they mm-hmm. need to understand how much they understand it all like mm-hmm. yes for sure those two questions so, so the first part the energy um we see the impacts of strikes like the, it may be smaller than we than we hope um strikes and the energy that comes from them has made it has made it has made a difference in the last few years and and the biggest way we've seen that is through conversation so climate change has become one of the major topics um on a lot of politicians minds and in a lot of a lot of higher higher level decisions um which is something that we really we really kind of take credit for within the environmental movement and, and with those strikes that draw out you know like hundreds of thousands of people um So I think energy plays a huge factor into into kind of creating um, these movements and creating that change. And I think that's why so many activists deal with this burnout is because they're trying to keep that energy going for as long as possible and create as much energy as possible and put it into as many actions as possible to be able to um, keep creating this kind of conversation and change throughout the movement. So I think energy does does play a huge, a huge factor in, in creating this change. Um, but I think so does change itself. So throwing energy behind the same thing all the time doesn't always create the same amount of change. So, so mixing it up and making sure that this energy is putting be- being put behind um, lots of different, different ways to create change is also incredibly important. And, and it allows for as many people as possible to get involved for sure. So the conversation, um, sorry, so the conversation okay. that you want to uh, engage and that will happen with politician, what kind of conversation that you want them to talk about? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a hard question because <laughs> it, it's, it's very broad. Um, so like myself personally, when I sit down with politicians, um, the biggest thing that I bring up is fossil fuels and, and the need to um, they need to move away from those like immediately <laughs> and as quickly as possible and, and the need to like halt all current fossil fuel projects, uh, specifically pipelines. Um, pipelines are incredibly destructive. And cause harm to so many people um, so that is that is one of the things that needs to be discussed among politicians um, but there are so many different things that need to be brought up and need to be discussed um, that I, I couldn't even list them <laughs> another so one, let's let's, let's talk about the fossil fuel so when you bring this topic so you you have talked with politicians about that We've, we've had so many conversations and not just not just me right lots and lots of climate activists have sat down and had conversations with political leaders and so what is the conversation leaders. is about what is what is the conflict what they say we can't we already invest money in that what what is the you say that this is what we need to do what do they say back well it's interesting because actually in a lot of the conversations I have had um, it's never a no back usually it's a yes we're listening we'll try our hardest we'll work on it We're doing all we can. It's a lot of that kind of responses. So, so it's not really a direct no. Um, it's kind of avoiding the subject or being like, we're doing our best and then nothing will come of it. 
Yeah. So it's not, it's not like they're saying no, um, but we are having a hard time actually getting, getting through um, anything after those meetings. I'm finding a lot of politicians really like to meet with climate leaders to be able to say they've met with climate leaders um, and then not actually take any of the advice from the climate leaders. <laughs> so avoiding the issue, this, this is why, what, what, give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> Because that that was my my feeling. I didn't know exactly what's happening, but this that was my my feeling when those this this most important conversation conversation are stuck. Mm -hmm. They're very stuck, and I think it's <sighs> I don't know. It's it's exhausting really to be saying the same things to politicians over and over and over again, and getting the same responses back, and then having nothing come of it. Um, and it's an interesting conversation to have at the moment as well as we approach the next conference of parties, which is COP26, which is the, the climate change conference. Um, and um, I've had so many conversations with climate activists in the last few days, in the last few weeks. Um, and there used to be kind of such a hype around that conference and everyone wanted to go to that conference to be able to speak with politicians and speak with world leaders and be able to get these points across. Um, but now it's relatively well known that even if you go to that conference and you speak to a politician, the chances of you actually being heard is so slim. Um, except there will be a photo conference, right? And then you get lots of photos with these politicians and these politicians get to say that, oh, look, I listened to Greta Thunberg. Oh, look, I listened to this climate activist. Um, and then yeah. not actually take any of that information anywhere. Um, That's what so was it's Greta like... was talking on, on her, on her um, film, right? She was saying, I'm doing that and that, and it's so frustrating because nothing is being done. Yeah, and it almost it almost discourages climate activists, I think, from meeting with with leaders, right? And because because they do, they use it as a photo session, right? They use it as a way to say, "Look, and I'm listening," when they're really not. Um, and of course, because they have they have big platforms, often bigger than us, they're able to kind of um, lead the conversation, and we're not able to step in and be like, "Actually, we had this meeting and nothing came of it." Um, so yeah. Then even if you're so brave and say nothing came of it and uh, we talk to them, but nothing, they can, they still show the photo that they're talking and they're listening and they're polite. Yeah. And they do polite, it. nice and polite. Yeah. We, we, we do what we can. We do what we can. Yeah. Yeah. It's just... an interesting, it's an interesting conversation. I think many people have said before as well, that it's, it's not always possible to change, um, change what the leaders are doing, but it is possible to change the leaders. So I think that's why, like, my biggest thing as well is I, I like to encourage as many youth as possible to run for, run for, run mm. for the government and run, Genius. and run, yeah, and, and run in elections because I think that's so incredibly important at this point. We're having so, such a hard time actually being able to reach these leaders that it's so important that we get people, we get ourselves in, into these, into these positions to be able to um, make these changes that we're fighting so hard for. It's so frustrating. It's just so frustrating. You know, you do so much and there's so much is being done, but there's always a place where it's stuck and where somebody's not willing to, to do the change. And from your perspective of doing that for, 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 uh, for the last uh, two years, is it politicians that stuck it? Is it the oil and gas industries that uh, behind that pulling the politicians? What, where is it really stuck? Why is it so stuck? It's so hard to know and it's and it's so hard to even even think about just because the fossil fuel industry does have such a control over over the power at the moment, right? And so many politicians have connections to that industry and um are supported even by that industry. Um 
that it's hard to know whether the power lies with the politicians or with the fossil fuel industry leaders. Um, and how much it's, really it's hard to know. Yeah, I think it's incredibly linked. Um, there's actually, I'm going to, there's a, <laughs> there's a group right now um, that's starting up that's actually looking into that, that COP conference. So COP26, that's meant to be, meant to be a conversation about, about climate issues and how we can go about dealing with them. Some of it's actually funded by the fossil fuel industry, um, which is incredibly scary to me. The fact that even our conferences about climate change are being impacted and kind of controlled in a way by this industry is incredibly scary and incredibly, it makes it incredibly difficult to get anything done when this industry has such a control over everything. Um, so, yeah. And the, and the term climate change is also coined by uh, the fossil fuel industry. It is, yeah. Because change and sounds so like so nice and take the time, we all grow up and change with time. <laughs> so, uh, um, innocent. Yep, I, I can't even. And it's, it's a lot of, there's a conversation now too, right? With lots of fossil fuel companies going like, we're working our hardest to make our, make our drilling oil as clean as possible. And it's, it's kind of like, you can't make drilling oil clean. Like, <laughs> it's, it's the greenwashing of the industry itself. Um, and it's a thing we run into with divestment a lot as well. And it's, it's companies not wanting to remove their money from them because they're like, we're making a difference by talking to them about like making their company greener. And we're like, you can't make the fossil fuel industry greener. <laughs> um, you can't? Their entire principle. You can't? No, their, their entire principle is built on an extractive process. Like, there's no way of making the fossil fuel industry sustainable. It's just not done. It's not possible, you mean? Yeah, it's not possible. Because they extract fossil fuel from the ground. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not sustainable and it's not, it's not possible to make it sustainable because there's no way of, of creating an ongoing cycle of fossil fuels that we can use at the rate we currently are. If, but if they stop expansion, the expansion and they will track, tra trap some of the gases going out from this process and, and use it for something else, like the technology could do something about it? I don't think we're at the place where it could, it currently could. Um, and I also think that like here, here in Canada in particular, like a lot of our climate activists try and highlight as many indigenous frontline voices as possible. And the biggest thing we see is the impact that this industry has had on their communities. Um, if you look at pipelines in particular, yeah, they have a huge impact on these communities and it's just, it's just not, not an okay industry. And, and it's not, it's not one that can be changed to be an okay industry. <laughs> it's basically, it's got to stop. <laughs> it's, it's the only way. Yeah. How much you feel, um, as, uh, personally, and, and maybe you could talk about, uh, your friends too, but how, how much this, your footprint is important? versus the government decisions how much how, how to balance the like how much i'm using the car and i'm you know i'm using things that uh, making pollutions and destruction right eating meat yeah and yeah well the biggest the biggest the the comment we get all the time and it's one that drives me crazy is a uh, how can you be a climate activist you drive a car you live in a house you're, you're a teenager. You use so many, you know, you use so many things. Like, like, how can you, how can you like say this about the fossil fuel industry? It's so hypocritical. Like you're relying on it. Um, and I think 
something that's really, really become clear over the last few years in particular and over the last century or so is individual actions matter. They matter. Of course they matter and, and they are important, but they are so small compared to actions of the industry and actions of the politicians and action of these large institutions like banks. Like I myself, if I went and lived in a cabin and didn't drive a car <laughs> and didn't communicate with anyone, had no electricity, which I, I would honestly be quite happy to do. I, I enjoy nature. It would have no impact. It would have barely any impact on the system and on our climate change impact. Um, because and, and I wouldn't be able to participate in things like the activism that is actually creating this real change. Right. So I think like individual action is important and it is important that we all try and live our live our lives as sustainably as possible. But only so much of it is only so much of that is possible. And in particular for people who don't have access, access to things that are more sustainable. Right. Like I'm lucky I live in an area that I can buy local um, local food and I'm lucky that I that I, I am able to eat vegetarian and I'm lucky that I am able to afford to eat vegetarian. I'm lucky that I'm able to to have access to all these all these things. But many, many families aren't, right? Many low-income income families in particular rely on a lot of things that people deem unsustainable. Um, and, and and it's it's up to the industries and, and the um, institutions and, and the governments to make to make living sustainably accessible for everyone. So I, I had a question for you, but the, you didn't say it uh, exactly. So let's see if, if, if I, if I uh, like got you correctly. Um, what do you need for, the, for, for those uh, organizations to grow and have bigger impact? So you said I need, you need more volunteers and more people to, to show interest. You need people to sign those petitions and you need to have a way when you get to those conversations with the older white <laughs> men, people sitting in these council, councils and with politicians to have an impact eventually, because you need a lot of people to show the support and then, you, and then eventually like what, what is happening and you need maybe youth and other new people, new leaders to, to change and shift sh to, to, to change. The yeah. <laughs> old, old, older leaders. Is there something yeah. else that is very important to make to, for those organizations to have better impact? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's an interesting structure that we're, we're kind of just starting to look into with, with the Divest Canada Coalition. And it's the idea of active support versus passive support. Um, so it, it's the idea that you only need, only need something like um, 30% active support um, to be able to actually achieve change as long as you have like 50% passive support. Um, so it's not just about needing more activists to come out and help us on the front, on the front lines. And it's not, it's not about needing, needing more people to directly change their lives to be able to fight for this. It's just people being aware that climate change is an issue and voting like climate change is an issue. And in particular voting, like I cannot emphasize how important it is to vote with climate change in mind. Um, and and it's, it's those people really, it's the passive supporters who kind of make all the difference. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. So the yeah. passive supporters that vote for the MLA and uh, the parliament and those kind of things, you mean? Yeah, of course. So there, there'll always be more general public than there will be activists. So say something about that, like uh, passive support uh, with climate in mind means in voting for a Green Party or there's more, more, more in that? Um, so like many organizations, we don't we don't endorse a, a single party. Um, 
vote with climate change in mind. Know who you're voting for. Know which party you're voting for and look directly into their climate change policies um, and vote on those. So if that means that the liberals one year have a really great climate change policy, then vote. If you think they have a great climate change policy, vote for them. If the Greens have a really good climate change policy, then vote for them. But vote with climate change in mind and make sure that you understand who you're voting for and what their policies are. Um, I think a lot of people kind of vote just off the party name. <laughs> and I think it's so important to actually know what the policies are of that group and of that person who you're voting in. By the way, it's it's, it's so so important what you're saying. And I want to say that in this last election that we had in Nelson, um, BC, um, the NDP had a, a plan and the Green Party had a plan for climate. It was a completely different plan. Mm-hmm. But as a private person that looks in those plans, it's very hard to understand uh, the differences. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, you, if you've seen that, but the NDP was talking, was all about personal uh, footprint. They will uh, subsidize bikes and they will subsidize changing your uh, heat way. How do you heat your house? And they will subsidize things so you can do something. And it feels very empowering as a person if you want to change something so you can do it. And the Green Party was talking about no pipeline and no uh, coal plant and other things, big things. Mm-hmm. And and when you're talking about education, I think education people how to decide and how to judge clim- climate plan is also very key. Because mm-hmm. you, can, you can look at those two plants for climate and you can say wow they're doing a lot and they're doing a lot and not really and not really understanding deeply how how climate works what is really need what have bigger impact and what is more important and like you say now and something that i know too that as as individual the impact is very minimal Right, compared to whatever new pipeline will will uh, be digged into the ground, mm-hmm. so I think the, this kind of education is different kind of education, not for school, actually for adults, people that vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think education in general is just so so important, um, no matter what age and no matter where. Um, education is a huge aspect of of fighting the the climate uh, the climate emergency. So I think I think you're right. Making sure that people understand um, the issues that come with with things like, you know, uh, shutting down a pipeline versus versus changing the way you heat your house, um, and and learning about the impacts of each of those, and obviously learning about things like how shutting down a pipeline will affect the indigenous communities in the area versus you switching your your heat, right? And 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 kind of kind of choosing the the bigger one that'll that'll impact the most people and make the most change. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about this indigenous. Like I've seen, I've seen in the you know in the news, uh, their strikes and they're being uh, attacked pretty severely by uh, police. With maybe it's not not maybe some of that in the U.S. and I'm not doing the right differentiation where which one of them in the U.S. they're being attacked with uh, water cannons and um, how much. Can you, uh, like, climate organization can help indigenous when they stand for support our water system, our watersheds, and and 
do you have a like straight communication with them on what they need mm -hmm. well we try as hard as possible to make sure that we're communicating with as many indigenous frontline activists as possible um, a lot of our organizations um, have done camp campaigns and partnered directly with indigenous organizations um, so i know the divest canada Co coalition um, is working with the college climate coalition and line three to be able to support that movement as much as possible um, so our, our biggest goal is always to amplify um, Indigenous voices and making sure that their work and their struggles and their effort is heard as much as possible. Um, and and you, you, did, you did say there that you, that you saw some of the ways Indigenous people have kind of been treated at their protests. Um, that's not just the US, it's huge here in Canada. Um, and I think it's important to look at things like the history of the RCMP when talking about that as well and how the RCMP was created and why they were created. Um, and the way they currently deal with Indigenous issues um, and the way they currently deal with Indigenous protests over things like pipelines. Um, and obviously some of the big ones in Canada have been TMX, which is still going on. What is TMX? Um, Trans Mountain Pipeline. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the way that the police and the RCMP have been dealing with with that is just disgusting. <laughs> and it's, um, it's crazy. And, and like, even we've had protests in Ottawa, which is where I usually am. Um, and I'll go to one protest one day for, for a climate issue. And then I go to a protest the next day and the climate issue protest will have, you know, a couple of police cars, not that many, went to an indigenous one, indigenous protest the next day and there's snipers on roofs. And we have lineups of police on either side of the protesters. And even just seeing that kind of um, and they're not there you know, to protect the protester. No, how is how is having like six or eight snipers on roofs in Ottawa protecting protesters? <laughs> and and it's it's it just it blows me away the fact that it was one day and the next day like they were directly after each other and just and I think the like, the climate one had more people. The climate one had more people show up, and yet the next day I think it was I think it was a protest in in support of the of the Wet'suwet'en people and. Um, it was just it, it blew me away to see see the difference in the amount of of police that showed up to that and this the snipers really blew me away i couldn't believe that there were snipers there snipers right like shooting from the gun yeah like standing on top of roofs with with guns yeah <sighs> and how do you explain that why do what why did, does the police do that it's it's the the entire system of police and the RCMP and anything that kind of falls into that category is just so messed up from the beginning uh, of, of why they were created. And if you look at the history of a lot of these, a lot of these institutions, they were originally created to quote unquote control indigenous peoples or, or kick indigenous peoples off their land. Um, and just, you know, it's, it's all systematic racism, systemic racism. It's, it's still, it's still in, it's still it's still in the institutions and, and it impacts the amount of amount of police that show up to protests and it impacts the way the way indigenous people are treated at protests over white protesters. Um, and it's in, it's incredibly harmful. And it's that's why it's also so important that um, allies show up to these protests that um, that indigenous people hold to be able to support and to protect as many indigenous activists as possible. <laughs>